Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for another day you bless us with. Thank you again for the opportunity to come together to look into your word, to learn from it. You bless her as he leads out, and as we sang, we can we come drawn near to you, near to each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Good morning to each of you, and welcome, especially to the many visitors who are here with us this morning. This being Father's Day, I have chosen to bring a message uh, on that subject. We have in our congregation here quite a few fathers, anywhere from great-grandfathers to brand-new fathers and and young men who I hope are aspiring to be fathers one day. So we have, we have a, a wide range, and I would like to just let you know right now that, that when I am done preaching, I'd like to open up for some, some um, words from you, if you care to, from you fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, uh, words of, of encouragement or some practical wisdom for us. So keep that in mind and, and be prepared for that. On the subject of fathers, I want to take uh, or find some wisdom by looking at the example of Jesus in the time that he walked here on this earth. That song we just sang about being part of the family of God, we realize that, that our human earthly families here are actually just a picture of, of Christ and his relationship with us. Um, it, it's... And because of that, we can look at the life of Jesus, and even though he was not a, a physical earthly father, he didn't bear children or wasn't married and didn't have children, but yet his example and, and the life that he lived, and especially we're going to look at his interaction with his disciples, gives us some, some very good advice, um, some, some wisdom on how to be a father. And I'm preaching this morning to many who are not fathers as well. I realize that. Uh, we, we are going to see not only the responsibility of a father, but also of a leader. I think that's important for, for each of us to um, remember, specifically for fathers here. But we're called to be leaders in, in different ways, um, even if you're not a father. And if you're a, a woman, a wife or a daughter, um, you have a responsibility and a very important responsibility as well. Um, in Genesis, it says that God created the woman to be a helpmeet for man. That was God's design, his purpose, and there's an important role there for you as well. But allow us to, this morning being Father's Day, to just focus especially on the fathers. I think we should appreciate the fact that, that our country actually has a day like this. Despite the, the um, moral downfall and, and the, the, um, just the falling apart of the home and marriages in general in our society, we still have a day specifically to honor fathers, and I hope we continue to do that. So I want to look, first of all, at God's design and his mandate for men to be leaders. I think it's important that we establish that and understand that fact that, um, first of all, before fatherhood, a man is called to be a leader. Again, that's, that's something that society, the, the godlessness in the world around us, they're rapidly um, losing that. They're turning 
They're rebelling against that. They're turning away from it. God's design and his mandate that men are to be leaders. So I want to take you to a couple passages of scripture to just see where where that comes from. Is that just an idea of man? Is it just, some might say, white supremacy or whatever, all kinds of reasons of why, why we as a society look to men to be leaders? No, it's not. It's, it's a mandate from God. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, I'm going to go through a couple of these verses rather quickly, so you don't need to take the time to turn there if you don't want to. But here God gives the command to Adam and makes it his responsibility to be a leader. It says in chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now you may say, how is that establishing man as a leader? Well, at this point, God had not yet created a wife for him, but he gave him a responsibility to be a leader. He was to, to take care of the world around him. And God specifically gave him a command here that he was to pass on then to that woman that he created, and, and as well as his descendants, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And I want you to take notice that this was something God told Adam, and he made it Adam's responsibility to tell Eve that. And it appears like Adam did that because when the serpent came to tempt Eve, she knew that that tree was not one that they could eat from. But um, I'm not sure exactly did, did Adam not communicate that well enough to her? Did he not properly teach her? Uh, was he just kind of missing at that time that he wasn't standing there? I, I don't know. We can, we can kind of have some ideas, I guess, of that maybe... Adam there was failing in his responsibility to be the leader that God had called him to be. But he was to, to give that command to Eve um, and, and was responsible that that um, tree be guarded and that they do not eat from it. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, God speaks to Eve To the woman, he said, this was then after they had sinned, and he pronounced a curse on, on, on the serpent, on the man and the woman and the earth. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. Or the New Living Translation says it this way, and I think it's maybe a clear interpretation in, in our language, in the modern English it says, your desire shall be to control your husband, and he will rule over you. So this, this loving, relationship, or loving leadership and the willing helpmeet that was God's design at creation uh, fell apart, and instead there was a struggle for dominance. The woman wanting to control the husband, and the hu husband seeking to rule over her. Instead of God's design, that the woman be a helpmeet and, and his design that the man be a loving leader. There was this struggle for dominance because of sin. But God's intent was that man be the leader. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, another passage I want to look at briefly. And interestingly, here in the time of 
the early church in the New Testament, Timothy is, or Paul is referring back to creation, to Adam, when he is explaining to them the proper role of a man and a woman. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So we see there that Timothy or Paul bases this teaching on the fact that Adam was formed first. Like we saw there in Genesis, it was his responsibility to be the leader. It was his responsibility to pass on the truth, to communicate that. And the woman was deceived. She was led astray. When the serpent came to her. She, I believe, knew what the truth was. But she was deceived, and she, I believe we can say she needed the man to be her leader, to be there beside her and help her, not to yield to temptation, but to stand for the truth. But Adam uh, failed in that way. So man is leading in teaching and in exercising authority, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Ephesians 5, um, another passage, it says, The husband is the head of the wife. As also Christ is head of the church. The husbands are to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. There it clearly states, husbands are to be leaders, just as Christ leads the church. And again, God's design is that they be loving leaders, not dominating leaders. This loving, sacrificial leadership is what Jesus displayed when he walked on this earth and in his interaction with the people around him, and especially the disciples that are, in a sense, almost like his children. A man, a husband, and a father, and each one is given an increase in responsibility and leadership. Men are to be leaders in general. Husbands have an extra responsibility and leadership in leading their wives, and fathers have an increased responsibility to lead their families, their children. So we want to be grounded in this truth that men are called to be leaders. That's not just a funny idea that somebody came up with sometime, and it needs to be evened out to where men and women are the same in their roles. No man is called to be a leader. And I believe that in that type of loving, um, sacrificial leadership that the Bible teaches us, there is found um, completeness and, and joy and contentment and, and security in a home, in a marriage, and in a family. I want to turn now to John chapter, um, mainly chapter 13, 14, and 15. That I'm going to look uh, a little bit beyond that as well. And we want to see how Jesus was an example of a godly father in his interaction with his disciples. Now, the, the setting here is, in, these, in this passage, this is the time from uh, the, the end of the Last Supper or after the meal was over, after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. From that time until the time that he went with his disciples out into the garden. And this whole part of the last part of 13, 14, 15, 16, and into 17 is mostly Jesus' words as he spoke to his disciples. Uh, the disciples injected some questions and things into there as well, but mostly Jesus was just speaking to his disciples about a variety of subjects here. 
He knew it was near the end of his earthly life, and he had some very important things he wanted to communicate to them. This was just before Jesus' crucifixion, and it was just after Judas went out to do his deed. So I'm going to point out about six different points here I have on um, examples that we see from, from Jesus' conversation here and his words and his life on what godly fathers are to be. I'll begin by reading verses beginning in chapter 13, verses 33 to 36. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Now, what I see happening here is that Jesus was preparing his disciples to go out on their own. He was preparing them for the time when he would no longer be with them, when they would not be walking in his footsteps directly. And, you know, as fathers, we probably haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, when our children were really young. But we are, our responsibility from day one as fathers is to prepare our children to follow someone else, to follow Jesus Christ, to follow, in in the case of a daughter, her husband, and, and, and to follow authority, whatever godly authority is put over them, or to follow that. So, Conrad, you are probably, the, I think, the newest father here, and I don't know, have you thought about that in the last few weeks? That your responsibility is to raise your daughter to follow someone else. Jesus was preparing his disciples to be without him, to be on their own. That is our responsibility as fathers. The purpose is to teach them to follow Christ after us. And the temptation, I think, that we face is to use our children for selfish reasons. We, we kind of want to maybe bolster, bolster our own ego, um, make ourselves look good as, as parents, as fathers. We, our children keep our children in line so that, so that other people don't have a, a negative view of us as fathers. Uh, there's different ways that we can actually kind of use our families for selfish reasons, but that is not the purpose that God gave them to us. It was to teach them and train them to follow him ultimately. In, verse, in chapter 15, verse 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. <clears throat> a godly father is to be a master to his servants, but also a friend. I think this is a very important point for us to understand here. Jesus said, yes, I, you know, he was there. They looked up to him as their, as their master. And they were, in a sense, his servants. But he said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. You know, a master doesn't tell his servants 
all his plans and what his intentions are and what his dreams are and what the future has. He just has that servant and you just do as I say. But Jesus said, you're more than that to me. I'm not just teaching you to do as I say, but I want you to understand what the whole picture is, what the whole plan is. I've told you everything that my father has communicated to me. And that's who we are to be as fathers in preparing our children to follow Christ. Not just a master, not just say, do this, but more as a friend, to have that relationship with them where they understand the purpose for life. They understand who God is and, and see us as fathers in a relationship with him as well. Where it becomes more like a friendship than a master-servant relationship. The second example from Jesus in this passage that I see is that he had genuine love for his children, if you want to call them that, his disciples, his followers. There was a genuine love for them. I'll read chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." And it may be interesting just to, to back up here and note that, that the first verse of, of chapter 14, so there's a chapter break there between verse 38 and verse 1, but I, there's no indication that there was any break in the conversation there. So I should have backed up to, to notice here what, what Jesus was talking about in the end of chapter 13. That's where Peter said to him, um, basically said, I'm going to follow you anywhere you go. I'll lay down my life for your sake, he said. And Jesus told him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And then he said, let not your heart be troubled. And, and on into those verses I just read. Now think about what, you know, if you put those, that conversation all together there without that chapter break. Here Peter just said, he made this bold, arrogant um, commitment that he's going to follow Christ, even lay down his life for him. And Jesus knew what he was going to do that, yet that very night. And yet Jesus expressed love and patience with his disciples. Um, Philip and, and Thomas both questioned here. And, and as you look at the conversation there, I see that the disciples were yet so immature and had so little understanding after all this time that Jesus had spent with them. 
the last several years in teaching them and in conveying to them his plan of salvation and how he would give his life for them. And yet they lacked so much understanding. They were like immature children. And yet he loved them. Despite what he knew Peter was going to do, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. I'm preparing a place for you to be with me for eternity. And I have to wonder if after Peter did what he did in denying the Lord three times, it says he went out and wept. Did he think about these words? I think he probably did. What Jesus had told him there, that look, depend on me. Come to me. I will accept you. He heard those words, and the outcome was very different from Judas Iscariot. Peter came back to Christ. This was the result of Jesus' genuine love for his disciples. We can also look further back in chapter 13 there, where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And take notice that Judas was there when he washed their feet. Jesus showed Judas servanthood, love, even though he knew what he was going to do. As fathers, we need to be patient with immaturity, with failures, offering forgiveness for hurt and wrong. And no matter how immature our children might be or what kind of, in what ways we're disappointed, by the choices they make, to still be willing to call them your children. As Jesus did here, he still accepted them as his disciples, though they were so immature and lacked understanding. I also had to think of the account where Jesus had a conversation with what we call the rich young ruler, And that's found in Mark chapter 10. And here this self-righteous man came to Jesus and he wondered what he needs to do to have eternal life. Or, or you could say he wanted all the good things that Jesus had to offer on top of all the riches he had already. He wanted to make sure that, that all these good things that Jesus had to offer were, were secured for him as well. So he wondered... What do, do I need to do, Jesus? And Jesus said something about keeping the law. And he said, oh, yeah, I've done all that. You know, I'm, I'm a good man. And then it says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack. So all that you have and give it to the poor. And, you know, Jesus, this man was coming to Jesus with a lot of self-righteousness. And Jesus saw that in him. He knew how important his wealth was to him. And he knew what his attitude was about, you know, I've been a good man. I've kept all the law. But still, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And And I had to wonder, you know, the writer, when they wrote this, what did they see in Jesus at that moment that indicated that he loved that man? They saw something maybe in the expression on his face. I don't know what exactly it was. But they knew that Jesus loved that man despite who he was.
Genuine love. There's another theme that I see in this passage um, coming from Jesus, and that is the, the comfort that he brings to his disciples in this time here before his death. The comfort in the hope of them being together. So they were facing a time, you know, they had spent a lot of time together over the last few years, but Jesus knew they were going to be separated that night. There was going to be a separation. But he brought comfort to them with the hope that they would again be together. And disciples didn't understand all that at that time, but did indeed find comfort in that later on when Jesus did leave this world. Uh, verses, we see this in, in the beginning of chapter 14 there, which I just read, where he says, let not your heart be troubled. And he talks about the place he's going to prepare for them, that they can come and be with him. And also, chap, or verse 23, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. As well as um, if you turn to chapter 17, this is still this same time frame here, but it's at the very end where Jesus was praying. And he says in his prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And there's, there's more instances in here you could pick out where Jesus expresses comfort to them. He brings comfort to them um, in the fact that, that they were going to be together despite the persecution they were going to face that he talked about in here as well. There's comfort in being together. And I guess the challenge I see here for us as fathers is, do we lead our, our families in such a way that, that, there is, um, that being together is comforting? Do we be the type of leaders, the type of fathers, that there is a comfort in being together? <clears throat> I think if we develop this, when our family is young, and when the children mature and they find spouses, their, their careers, their whatever it may be, takes them different directions in life, maybe long distances apart, there'll still be a comfort in being together. And I think some of you know what that means, are experiencing that, a comfort in being together, and ultimately to convey to them the, the comfort of being together as the family of God. And, you know, there's sickness, there's disease, all, you know, eventually death is going to separate you as a family. Unless the Lord returns, death is going to separate us from our loved ones. But there's that comfort of being together in heaven that brings stability. And that's what we as, as leaders, as fathers, need to be communicating and teaching our families. I've noticed already when there is a death even families who, uh, I guess you say, you question their godliness. Or you're not really sure where they stand. Based on their lives, it doesn't seem like they pay much attention to God. And yet when there's death, they, they somehow grasp for that comfort in being someday being together again. And we'll, we'll even talk of that, though, though they may not talk much about God at all. And yet in that time of separation, they grasp for that comfort that someday... They may be together again. This brings stability to a family when there's comfort in being together. We're given the command as fathers to teach the truth, to show them the right way, and teach our families to follow the truth. 
And we see Jesus doing that in here as well. Chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And also 21 to 24, he again um, refers to his commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. As fathers, we are to give them the commands of God, not our own commands, but the commands of God and teach them to follow them. Show them the way of truth. We should display a passion for living and teaching the truth. In order for us to do that, we have to know the truth. We can never stop learning. I think this is so important for, for fathers. Uh, we, we find ourselves often in a, a place in life where we're very busy. We have jobs, careers, businesses, uh, a lot of other things to give our attention to. But we should never stop learning. Now, I know there's what we sometimes refer to as the school of hard knocks, where you just, you just go through life and, yes, you're inevitably you're learning new things just by the circumstances. But I'm talking here about, about pursuing learning um, often primarily by reading, whether it's reading God's Word or, or other good beneficial books. We need to have a passion to learn and never stop learning. You're out of school, you have a family, you have a lot of other responsibilities, but don't stop learning. Learn to read, analyze, discern, and read and read. This is how we will know the truth and understand it in a way that we can communicate it to our families, to our children. There's the old adage that more is caught than taught. It's very true. We need to remember that. We can tell them all the right things, but our life also needs to back that up. Give commandment and be firm because you love them. Again, referring back to that responsibility we have of being loving leaders for our wives and our children. We give commandments because we love them, not because we're seeking to control them. A very big difference there. We need to give commandments. We need to be firm. But it's because we love them. And we need to persist in teaching, as we see Jesus doing here. Here he is nearing the end of his life, nearing the end of his opportunity to interact with them one-on-one. And it seems like there's so much here that he still needs to teach them, so much they haven't learned. He persisted in teaching them. He didn't lose patience with, with them. He wanted them to ultimately bear good fruit. <clears throat> Jesus also gave us the example in here of submission to authority. Chapter 14, verse 10. Do you think, or the last part of verse 10 there, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. 
and in chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus was submissive to the authority over him. And we cannot forget that as fathers, that we are also under authority from different forms, from God, of course, ultimately, but also our government, our, our employers, our uh, whatever it may be, in various forms, we have authority that we need to submit to. What do our children see in us as fathers? Do they see an example of submission? And lastly, I see Jesus here bringing what I, the word, I, the best word I could find to describe it is security. There's, um, Jesus uses throughout this conversation, he uses words like peace, uh, don't be troubled, be of good cheer, there's joy, you're loved. All these speak of security. That's a responsibility we have as fathers and as leaders to bring security into our homes, into our families. And I'm not talking about security like deadbolts and cameras and weapons and things like that. But a security where our children feel safe in our presence. How did Jesus bring security to his disciples? Um, if yeah, I think I'll just turn to chapter, take the time to read a couple more verses here. In chapter 16, um, he spent some time warning them or, or just telling them about what the future is going to hold for them. And it didn't look very good. He talked about the persecution that they would face, that they will be hated. Uh, those who don't love God would hate them because they love God. And he says in chapter 16, verse 22 and verse 33, Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He communicated security to them because he was trustworthy. He, he kept his word, and they knew he would keep his word. They trusted him. He said, this is what is going to happen, and it did happen. He warned them about the future. We don't need to hide the ugliness of the world completely from our children but be honest with them. This is what is out there, but this is what Jesus says. This is what the Word says. This world is just a temporary dwelling place for us. That will bring them security. And the relationship that Jesus had with his heavenly Father, the disciples were, I think, beginning to understand that here, that he came from the Father. He was from God. He was not just a normal human being. He had a relationship with an all-powerful God. And we as fathers need that relationship as well. That will bring security to our families. Is the security that you're offering your family would still be good when there's sorrow, persecution, or when you are hated by the world? Will that security still hold up? I want to close yet with three of the best words for a father to say to his children. Taken out of chapter 14 here. Three of the best words for a father to say to his children. 
In verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. The best words we can say to our children is, I will not leave you. We know what many homes in the world look like. I think we don't have to look too hard to see the insecurity and the turmoil when fathers leave. When our children are scared, do we leave them? And yes, we have to leave for work. We have to leave for other responsibilities. Do they know that we look forward to coming back? We will not leave. Another one of the best words that we can give our children is that Jesus is alive. In verse 19 of chapter 14, Jesus said, Because I live, you will live also. Jesus is alive, and that message our children need to know. The truth is, truth, true life is found in him. We need to teach them salvation, that Jesus is alive, and rejoice in that. The third one is peace. <clears throat> the best words we can give our children is peace. Home should be a peaceful atmosphere. They should see us as peacemakers in our relationships with our spouses, with our neighbors, with our community, with our co-workers, whatever it may be. Do they see us as leaders who strive to make peace? <clears throat> and do they know that the world's offer of peace is fake? It's not real. The wealth, the, the money, pleasures, whatever it may be, things that the world offers to us in an attempt to bring peace into our lives. Do our children know that that is fake? We need to speak to them of peace. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can open your word and find all this wisdom here. Thank you that you have a design and a plan for our homes, families, and especially for us as fathers. We see the example that you left us, that you give to us as the head of the church and in the life that Jesus lived on this earth, the example he leads us. Help us to pay attention and to take notice of this godly example and apply it to our lives. Thank you for the blessings that we enjoy in this country, in our land, the freedoms we have, and the many good times we can have together as families. We also realize this is not a guarantee. Your word speaks of persecution, of separation, and we also know that eventually death will bring separation. But this is not the end. Thank you for the promises of your word, and we can trust in you. Help us to communicate this to our families as fathers. To help them to see the way and the truth and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.